0: Well, it is certainly a joy and a pleasure to see all of you here this morning. I trust that you have come for no other purpose than to honor God with our lips and with our hearts this morning as we have opened our mouths and approached His throne of mercy and grace and prayer, as we have opened our mouths to sing these songs of praise, to glorify and magnify His good and great name, as we have opened our minds this morning to His wonderful love for us as He has shown that in so many different ways, but I think in the ultimate way by sending His Son here to the cross. And hopefully we will open our minds and our hearts this morning and our ears as we open God's Word together and as we study that uh, together this morning. Thank you for being here. We have several who are visiting with us this morning. If you are a visitor among us, please know that you are counted as our guest If you are visiting with us, perhaps from the community, and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, perhaps you are looking for a group of God's people with whom you can associate and worship and work together, uh, and you want to know more uh, about how you can do that very thing, we would be happy to sit down together with you and open God's Word together and consider what God has to say that would help you seek Him and help you to find Him so that you can live a life that is pleasing to Him. If you met someone that had never heard the word church before, or if you had met someone who knew nothing about the church that belongs to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, what scripture would you take them to first to begin to open their eyes and to begin to lead them down the right path that they could have a good understanding of the church that belongs to Christ? Some of us might turn in our minds or in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2 as we have recorded for us there on the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the Lord's church as Peter and the apostles had the opportunity to preach the gospel of Christ in its entirety. Christ has died upon the cross as we have remembered this morning. He has risen from the grave. He has ascended to his Father in heaven. He is reigning at his right hand as Lord of Lords and King of Kings over heaven and earth. And now the full message can be preached to that audience of thousands of Jews that have assembled there in Jerusalem from all over the world. And Peter and the apostles preached that message about Christ, Him crucified, but also Him resurrected and reigning as Lord and King. You might take them to Ephesians chapter 5, where we have that beautiful text that Paul describes there in talking about the marriage relationship between husbands and wives and He says to us in no uncertain terms at the end of that discussion that he's really not discussing marriage. But he is describing for us the beautiful, the harmonious relationship that exists between Christ and the church. We might study with him the whole book of Ephesians as it talks to us about that relationship. And that would be a great study. But I think perhaps a better place for us to begin with someone who maybe doesn't know anything about the church is from Matthew chapter 16 in the text that Brother Richard read for us just a moment ago. In that particular text, Jesus and the apostles are in the area of Caesarea Philippi. That's about 20 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And as they were traveling along, of course, as we read in that text already this morning, Jesus asked his disciples, his apostles there, who do the people say that I am? And they give various answers that you are Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets of old has come. But then Jesus asked another question specifically of the 12 and makes it more pointed to them, not who do all the crowds say that I am, but who do you that these men that Jesus has hand picked, has hand chosen, that have been walking with him for some time now, that have heard him speak, that have seen him perform miracles, that have listened to conversations that he had one on one with people. And he asked them directly, Who do you say that I am? And of course, we know, as was often the case, that Peter spoke up. And as Jesus was asking these two important questions about his identity, Peter, of course, answered the second question with a very clear confession when he said that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And upon those words coming out of Peter's mouth, the text tells us there that Jesus spoke a blessing to Peter. And he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because of the answer that he had given. But then Jesus spoke some very significant words about the church, And this morning I want us to look here at this particular passage in Matthew chapter 16 and especially focus on five very significant, very important words, I believe, that are from the mouth of Jesus Christ Himself that tell us a lot about Christ's church. They are found here in Matthew 16 and verse 18. When Jesus responded as He blessed Simon again, And he said to him, I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The first of these significant words that we can learn from the mouth of Jesus Christ about his church is the word I. Jesus says, first of all, here in this verse that I. As a subject of the phrase, Jesus is saying to his 12 and he's saying to us today as we are reading and considering this text, that he is the one who is going to take action. And so we need to just think for just a moment about who is Jesus. I would assume in the audience this morning that if somebody came to you and asked you that question, who is Jesus, that there would be a number of biblical answers that would come to our mind and a number of answers that would be according to Scripture that we could give correct answers to that question of who is Jesus. But is Jesus only a man? He certainly came in the form of man. But is he only a man? Is Jesus only a good teacher, a good rabbi in the first century? Is Jesus only an important historical figure? Because here we are some 2,000 years past the time in which he walked on the earth. and, And for the entire world, whether those people are believers in God or not, whether they believe that Jesus is the Christ of God or not, That here we are, some two thousand years later, and we're still we are still discussing him, we're still debating the things that he has said, we're still trying to uh, determine whether he truly did all these miracles that he claimed to be. Is he just an important historical figure? And of course, the answer to all of those questions is a resounding no. As Peter accurately said here in verse sixteen, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. He is the Son of the living God. Some other passages for you to think about just very briefly uh, this morning in relation to this question of who is Jesus. That he is the Holy One of God. You might remember in the discussion that Jesus had in John chapter 6 as he got into some deep things and talked to, to the crowds about himself and who he is, that he is the bread that came down out of heaven, that he is the living bread. And he said to that audience, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, that you're not going to have life eternal. And some of those in the crowd there couldn't really grasp what he was saying. And so John makes the observation to us at verse 66 that as a result of these teachings that many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And so Jesus then turns to the 12 once again and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter again spoke up and he basically said, Lord, we have no other, no other alternative to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And he also said there, verse 69, that we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He is the Holy One of God. He is the chosen one of God. In passages like John chapter 3 and verse 16 that we know is very familiar to us, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5 is Jesus opened that very beautiful prayer before He was about to be crucified. We know from those two passages and other places that He is the only begotten Son of God, that He is the beloved Son of God. He is the one in whom God is well pleased. Matthew 17, I'm thinking of John 17. Matthew 17, of course, is the transfiguration, the chapter right after we're looking at this morning. where where the Father spoke those words from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You need to listen to him. So back to our text in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, as Jesus is speaking these words in response to the confession of Peter about who he is, that Jesus would first of all say in relation to his church, I. And when Jesus said I, he was saying that, this church that we'll talk about here in just a minute, what that is or who that is more correctly, that when Jesus spoke about that in relation to the church, that he was saying that the church will be of divine origin. It would not be something that is of human origin. It's not something that originates in the mind of man. It's not something that man creates. It's not something that man has put together. It is something that has come from God. Also, when Jesus said, I, I believe he was saying that he was the one, as God in the flesh, as the Son of God, as the Messiah of God, he was the one who was taking the initiative to soon begin building the church. Thus, he would become not only the chief designer of the church that belongs to himself, but he would become the lead architect. He was giving the plans for how his church would be built And because Jesus Christ said this very important word that I, because Jesus Christ acted, his church then exists today. The second important word about Christ's church that's found here in this verse is will. Jesus says, I will. This is not an English class by any means. Uh, I I probably have forgotten more than I uh, learned in my English classes, to be honest with you. But I do know that this word will is a future tense word. And Jesus is saying here to the 12 and to us that he, again, he taking the action here, that he is going to take future action. What that tells me anyway, and what that ought to tell all of us, is that his church was not in existence at this particular time when Jesus spoke these words in Matthew 16 and verse 18, that his church was not yet established. It had not yet begun. But it also shows us that this church was not just an afterthought in the mind of God that somehow after Christ went to the cross and Christ died upon the cross that Satan was able to defeat Jesus Christ and that was the end of the story. And so God on the spur of the moment had to come up with some second plan. And it wasn't the fact that that the church just came into his mind at that particular time and it was kind of plan B, if you will. But it tells us here as Jesus is speaking... That he's going to take future action and it is going to come about. That he already knows that the church is going to come into existence. He already had it in his mind here some six months to a year before he was crucified. But more than that, as we read through scripture, we find that Christ's church was something that was well thought out. And it was well thought thought out and well planned long before Jesus Christ ever came to earth, long before he ever even created the earth and the physical universe that we know. From the book of Ephesians, again, that great book about the relationship between Christ and the church, the Apostle Paul wrote these words at the very beginning here in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. He says to us here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. The Apostle Paul is reminding those Ephesian brethren and us that even before God created all of this that we see in the physical realm, that God already had a plan of action in the spiritual realm, if you will. That God was thinking spiritually even about us, His physical creation. And He was thinking about and had a desire for us to be a part of His church that would belong to His Son, Jesus Christ. That He would call us out of the world and choose us in Christ even before the foundation of the world that, as Gavin has already spoken to us this morning in the 9 o'clock hour, that we would be a certain kind of people. That we would be a holy and blameless people as we live before Him. The Apostle Paul also spoke of this in very similar terms in writing the second letter to the young preacher Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. Paul says here, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Notice verse 9, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. From all eternity, Paul says here, before God created the heavens and the earth, as we read in Genesis 1 and verse 1, that God had a plan, God had a vision, if you will. And His vision, His plan was this, to save His holy and His blameless people in Jesus Christ which we're going to see as we come to the last important word this morning as we think about what His church is. The third important word that is mentioned to us here in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 is the word build. Jesus says that I will build. Jesus is taking the action as we've already pointed out this morning. He is taking the initiative. He is talking about future action and the future action that Jesus is going to take here is the action of building something. However, I would suggest to you that this building project that Jesus was about to undertake, it was not a one-time event. It was not something that just took place on the day of Pentecost and that was it. Rather, I would suggest to you that this building project that Jesus is involved in with His church is something that is an ongoing process. It is something that is even a daily or even an hourly process process that continues, that as long as the gospel goes forth, as long as the gospel is preached throughout the world and people listen to the gospel and they respond to the gospel in obedient faith in Jesus Christ, that the Lord's work of building continues. I don't know about you. I don't know how many of you are on social media. I know several of you are, are on my friends list on Facebook. Maybe you're on Twitter or Instagram or some other social media Uh, platform. But just this past week, as I was thinking about this particular sermon, just this past week, there have been at least maybe four or five uh, pictures, videos, uh, posts about someone becoming a Christian uh, in different places around this country. And if you have received just in this past week, several of the uh, reports from evangelists that we, we are having fellowship with in this country, but some in other countries that uh, there was one brother, I don't remember exactly who it was, but I believe there were something like 250 uh, baptisms that have taken place in the last number of months. The same process that was going on in Acts chapter 2 is going on today. And not just here in Little Rock, not just here in the state of Arkansas, not just in our country, but throughout the world. That people, men of faith, men who are gospel preachers like Peter and the apostles are standing before audiences, small and great, and they are proclaiming the same message that Peter and Paul and John and Timothy and Titus and others have proclaimed before us. And they are preaching the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And as they are preaching that good news message, there are people who are responding to that just like the people did on the day of Pentecost. What do we need to do about this? How do we need to respond? What do we need to do to be saved? And they are obeying the gospel of Christ and they are becoming Christians. And every time that happens, I would suggest to you that Christ is continuing to build His church. I want you to look there early in the church's history back to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 2, because Luke tells us there that's exactly what happened. In Luke chapter 2 at verse 41. After he had spoken this great message about Jesus Christ and who he is and how they were personally responsible for crucifying him on the cross and what they needed to do in response to that, verse 41 says, so then those who had received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then as time goes on at the end of this chapter, Luke records for us at the end of verse 47 that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. As the gospel continued to be preached, not just here on the day of Pentecost, but as days and weeks and months and years went by and the gospel continued to go out into the world, there were good and honest hearts just like those 3,000 on the day of Pentecost who said, He's talking to me and I need to respond. And based upon their response, the Lord added them to His church. Over in chapter 4 and verse 4, the same thing going on. After Peter and John had had that opportunity to to preach the gospel, pretty much a similar sermon recorded for us here in chapter 3 is what we have in chapter 2. And verse 4 of chapter 4 tells us that many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And so as lost people, those people who are lost in their sins, they hear, they believe, they obey the gospel message of Christ. The Lord is adding stones, if you will, To his spiritual building, that the building is is continuing to be built, it is continuing to expand. As he is adding those stones, those living stones, as Peter describes us in 1 Peter 2, as he is adding saved people to his building, to his church. The Apostle Paul, again from that, that book about the church and Christ in Ephesians chapter 2, describes those of us who are God's people, the church in these terms of a building. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning at verse 19, as Paul has already talked to both Jew and Gentile about the fact that we, we all have sinned against God, but God in the richness of His mercy and His kindness and in His great love and grace for us, that God has acted on our behalf and God has made possible our salvation in Jesus Christ. And now those who are Gentiles that have once been far off can now come near that all of us can approach God Jew and Gentile together. But he says this at verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, listen to this language, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God, In the Spirit, the the spiritual building of which Paul makes it very clear here that Christ Jesus is the cornerstone, we're all attached to Him. It all begins with Him. It starts with Him. But the spiritual building of which He is the cornerstone, it is the church. It is God's household. It is God's temple, Paul says. It is where God dwells. I want you to first notice as we look here at this passage in Ephesians 2, to first notice that the Apostle Paul says that the church has been built. He says, having been built, that is action that began in the past. That is, as he is writing these words to the church in Ephesus, he's reminding them and us that Christ, yes, has already begun that building process. But secondly, notice in this text that Paul also says that this building, this spiritual building of God is being fitted together that it is being built together, that it is growing. All of those phrases are continuous action words, that it's not something that just takes place one time and then Christ sits back and says, well, it's done. My building is built. My church is complete. But Paul says, you Jews and Gentiles, as you continue to preach the gospel to lost people around you and they respond in obedient faith, that the Lord adds them to his church, that the Lord puts that stone into his building, as it were, and all of us are being fitted together in one body that belongs to Jesus Christ. All of us are growing up in him. And so Christ continues building his church today as he always has. It is one stone. It is one person at a time. The fourth important word that Christ gives us here back in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 is the word my. Jesus says that I will build my. And in saying my, I believe Jesus is claiming ownership. He is claiming relationship. He is saying that these people that are mine, that they are my possession, if you will. Staying here in the book of Ephesians, notice back in chapter one, in this a uh, prayer that, that Paul is offering for the Ephesian brethren. Notice some things that he says here about Christ and his relationship to the church, beginning at verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and, a power, and power and authority and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Paul would write much the same thing when he spoke to the Colossians about the preeminence of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. Notice what he says here at verse 18, that He, Christ, is also head of the body, the church. That Jesus Christ is the preeminent one because He was raised from the dead, because He rules over all that exists. He has the right to be head of his church. And then that beautiful description that is given to us there in chapter 5 of the relationship that exists between Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22, Paul writes, "'Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. "'For the husband is the head of the wife, "'just as Christ also is the head of the church, "'he himself being the Savior of the body.'" But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Huh? There again, just like we read from chapter 1, Verses 3 and 4, that God, before He created this physical world, had in mind that we would be the church that belongs to Christ, that we would be the followers of Christ, His people, that we would be holy and blameless. And Paul comes back to that same idea here. So he continues there in verse 28, "...so husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself." For no one ever hates his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Once again, just like Paul has told us back in chapter 1, as he told us in Colossians chapter 1, so he says here in chapter 5 that Jesus Christ is head of his body. That Jesus Christ is the head of His church. Why is that so? Because He is the one. He is the only one who gave Himself on the cross of Calvary to cleanse us from our sins. He is the only one who gave Himself on the cross to sanctify us, to set us apart as His holy and blameless people. And because of who Jesus is, as we've already talked about that earlier this morning, and because of what Jesus, what Jesus has done for us, as Paul reminds us in this text, he and he alone is eminently qualified to be the head, not a head. How difficult would that be for our bodies if we had two or three or five or ten or 10,000 heads running our body? There would be chaos. There would be confusion. No, Paul says he is the head of his church. Let us, brothers and sisters, never forget that. That even as we sometimes use the word church and we speak of it to talk about here like the church at Fairview Park in a local sense, that we are Christians who live in this location and we have collected or banded ourselves together to operate as the Lord's church here, even as we speak of it in that sense that The preacher is not the head of this church, that the elders are not the head of this church, that none of us as human beings are the head, that Christ is the head of his church. And that's the last word that we're going to look at this morning, church. Jesus said here in Matthew 16, verse 18, that I will build my church. When he said that word church, what did he mean? Although our modern world almost always attaches a religious connotation to this word church, it it doesn't have to have a religious connotation to it. I'm sure as many of us are aware, the Greek word from which our English word church comes really just is talking about a called out assembly. And it can be an assembly that has been called out for various kinds, for various purposes. Just a couple of examples in Acts 7 and verse 38 is, Stephen was giving a history lesson there to the Jews about their own history. He talks about Israel and Moses standing in the assembly. That that is the word from which our English word church comes. In Acts 19, as Paul is in the city of Ephesus, and there's a riot that starts in that city because of him preaching the gospel, because of him healing a, a girl and casting a demon out of her and all that goes on there in Acts 19, that there were citizens of that city of Ephesus that assembled themselves together, Paul says. And that's the same Greek word from which our word, English word church comes. It's just talking about the citizens of that particular location coming together, being called out of their daily walk and called to that assembly, that group, for a specific purpose. Although the religious world around us commonly uses the word church to maybe refer to a denomination or to refer to some institution or to refer to maybe a bureaucracy or a hierarchy or even using the word church sometimes to refer to a physical building like we are in this morning. Jesus and the New Testament writers use that word church to refer to people. And I hope you have already gotten that this morning as we've looked at all these passages. But he's referring to people whom Christ is calling out of the world to come out of sin and darkness, to come out of living under the dominion of Satan, as Paul would talk about there in Galatians 1. That He has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light, into the kingdom of His dear Son. It is people whom Christ has called out of the world to be saved from sin. It is people whom Christ collects together to become His own special people. A people for His own possession. I want you to... Go back to the book of Acts if you're not back there yet. And just a couple of examples of many that we could cite this morning to help us think biblically about the word church in Acts chapter one at verse eight Acts chapter eight rather in verse one. As Stephen has preached that great sermon there in chapter seven, and the the, the crowd rejects it. They stone him to death. Luke tells us there at verse one that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul, Luke says, began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Over in chapter 9 at verse 31 Luke just makes this very simple observation to us about the church in a particular part of the world. He says to us there at verse 31 of Acts 9, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Here are just a few verses that use the word church. Let me ask you just a couple of questions about that as we go back to the passage we just looked at at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. Did did Saul persecute or ravage or drag off or imprison a bureaucracy? Did, did, Did an institution as those individual Christians, as the church there in Jerusalem, except for the apostles, kind of disbanded and they went to all places in the world. We read about some of those places in more detail in chapter 11. But, but, but did an institution scatter into the world to preach the gospel? Did, did a building there in Acts 9 in verse 31, did a building, some physical structure, enjoy peace and increase? We, we know all the answers to those questions are no. That Luke is talking about a people that Saul ravaged the church. He ravaged people's lives. People who belonged to Jesus Christ, people who were saved. It is those people, that group, that collection of saved people in those regions that Paul, that Luke rather mentions in chapter 9 and verse 31 of Acts who enjoyed peace and continued to grow. So I would suggest to you that whether a given scripture, as we look at that word church in the New Testament, whether a given scripture is describing the one church that belongs to Christ, that is the group of all the saved people that belong to him, or whether the word church in a given text in the New Testament is describing a group of people in a given location that belong to Jesus Christ, that, that word church is always describing people. It is talking to us about Christ's saved, called out assembly. And let us always remember that. So when Jesus said, In response to Peter's confession in Acts 16 and verse 18, that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build this church. He said, I will build my church. Five very significant words that we need to remember. That we need to take into our hearts and we need to meditate upon and reflect upon as God's people that we don't lose sight of as we live from day to day. But also, as we began our lesson this morning, I'm suggesting to you, I think this is a good starting point, (laughs) to talk to someone who is not a Christian, to talk to someone who is not a part of the Lord's church, and to begin to explain to them just how significant, how important His church is. What about you this morning as we close our lesson? Are you a part of the church that Christ is building? I'm not asking you this morning, are you a part of some denomination that started with some man hundreds or thousands of years ago? I'm not asking you this morning, are, are you uh, a part of some bureaucracy or some hierarchy that the, Lord may, the, the world may think of as being the church? But I'm asking you this morning, are you in Christ Are you a part of the body of saved people that belongs to him? And the New Testament tells us how to be that, how to be a part of his church. And you can take those first few steps this morning if you need to. Just like those people did on the day of Pentecost thousands of years ago. If you have heard the gospel message, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, if you really believe in that message that he was not only crucified and died upon the cross to redeem us from our sins, but he was raised. He had the victory over Satan, and he is reigning at God's right hand now. If you're willing to believe that and believe that he is the Christ this this morning and to confess that faith and to repent of your sins, to turn away from your lifestyle of living for yourself, then you this morning can be buried with Christ in the waters of baptism. And His blood that you contact there will cleanse you from all of your sins and you can rise to walk in newness of life. Do you need to do that this morning? If you are a member of the body of Jesus Christ and yet maybe you haven't been very faithful in that, maybe you have not looked like you are different from the world, and it may be that you have sinned against God, just admit that to Him. Make things right with Him this very day as we're about to sing this invitation to song that our brother Michael has chosen for us, would you come call upon the name of the Lord this morning in obedient faith? You need to do that now. Think about that, and if you need to respond, do so as we stand and as we sing.